As you know, about two weeks ago, we had our uh, uh, annual Christmas party, and I was fortunate enough to win this nice, cute snuggly, and it's got happy monkeys on it, and Rob Hobson told me he would give me 20 bucks if I wore it while I preached. <laughs> Rob, you can keep your 20 bucks. <laughs> We could do that as a fundraiser, maybe. Y'all want a 20 bucks a piece, I'd wear it. <laughs> oh, here's Jason. You didn't do anything. But we know also that Jason celebrated his 40th birthday on Friday, so a big happy birthday to Jason. And I just wanted to let you know that I checked the actuarial charts, and a man uh, who reached the age of 40 in 2012 Average age span is 86. So in three years, you'll have more years behind you than you do in front of you. <laughs> Just thought I'd give you that happy thought. <laughs> so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 63 and start with verse 1. Who is this who comes from Eden, dressed in bright red, coming from Basra? Who is this one wearing royal attire? who marches confidently because of his great strength. It is I, the one who announces vindication and who is able to deliver. Let me pause here as, as a point of introduction. You know Isaiah is a challenging book to understand. Uh, we never know exactly what Isaiah is trying to tell us. Uh, oftentimes he uses poetic language. Um, the t context here indicates that that's exactly what he's doing, he's using, using poetic language. So, um, based on this understanding, uh, we have determined to talk about this as if it's poetry. So, continuing in verse 2, Why are your clothes red? Why do you look like someone who has stomped on grapes in a vat? I have stomped grapes in the wine press, all by myself. No one from the nations joined me. I stomped on them in my anger. I trampled them down in my rage. Their juice splattered on my garments and stained all my clothes. For I looked forward to the day of vengeance. And then payback time arrived. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was shocked because there was no one to offer support. So my righteous arm accomplished deliverance. My raging anger drove me on. I trampled nations in my anger. I made them drunk in my rage. And I uh, splashed their blood on the ground. And in this little dialogue between the author and this uh, uh, person who responds, is just this question and answer. And in this portion, we see a series of these questions and answers. The purpose of which is to set up the reader. Much like when we talked about Romans, uh, the first portion of it was a setup. This too is also a setup. We want to uh, agree with this passage. Uh, Isaiah wants us to think that the nation, the nations that have been trampled underfoot, have it coming. That this judgment was due and righteous. So one of the things that we need to understand to understand this little portion of the passage is we need to understand who is this who responds to Isaiah's questions. 
When Isaiah asks who it is, the the responding character simply answers, it is I. So who is I? Uh, For our purposes, the I is going to be the Lord himself. And it seems to be, make it a little more understanding, more, a little easier to understand if you look at it that way. Uh, whenever you're dealing with poetic writing, it is important to uh, uh, understand that the writer frequently takes license with the language. So we should let the words paint a vivid picture in our minds. This will help us relate to the story. Allow your imagination to flow. Feel free to be... Close your eyes if you want to listen to when we're reading the scriptures. And then when your mind conjures up an image, try and relate it to your own life. And so let's continue in verse 7. I will tell you of the faithful acts of the Lord, of the Lord's praiseworthy deeds. I will tell, tell about all the Lord did for us, the many good things he did for the family of Israel because of his compassion and great faithfulness. He said, certainly there will be my people, children who are not disloyal. He became their deliverer. Through all that their sufferings, he suffered too. The messenger sent from his very presence delivered them. In his love and mercy, he protected them. He lifted them up and carried them through ancient times. But they rebelled and offended his Holy Spirit. So he turned into an enemy and fought against them. So here's the setup we had where we were thinking about the nations have it coming. And then he turns around and says, and all that the Lord had done for the nation of Israel, they rebelled against him. Uh, Frequently when we see uh, the failings of Israel, we don't identify with their plight. We often believe that that would never happen to us. In our minds, bad behavior is always done by other people. If we were in their uh, position, we would not have done the same. We would do what is right and pure and true. But Israel is God's chosen people, and he frequently uses his chosen people because they were unique. However, Israel in this particular situation is not talking about the nation itself. It's a type of every man. So it would probably be easier for you to understand this if you instead of said Israel, you said I us or we because that's really what it means that's really what they're trying to talk about Uh, the nation of Israel has been through so much that often they have said as uh, does anybody remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof yeah well Tevye has this uh, monologue that he has with God frequently through the movie and one of the times he says Lord I know that we are your chosen people But every once in a while, could you have chosen somebody else? It is easy. um, It is easy to identify with um, uh, with Israel if you just replace the word with me, I, us, we. Um, There is a story, however, that I hear from a lot of different pastors over the years. It it is either church lore. Uh, or church legend, or it's such a true story that every pastor has at least one example of it. And it goes something like this. Uh, A pastor has a woman from his church who comes to him for counseling. She is a believer. She has been coming to the church for a long time. She has raised her children in the church. 
but she's married to an unbeliever. And she is concerned for his eternal soul. So she asked the pastor to go and talk to him. The pastor agrees to talk to her, and um, her husband is this non-believer. He frequently spends his Sundays drinking beer and watching sports. He, from time to time, will go with his friends to watch the exotic dancers. He loves his wife and has no objection to her faith, but he's not interested in God at all. So the pastor talks to him about the blessings that God has done for him, how he has has a loving wife, a good job, many friends, and his children have grown up to be honorable people. And the man agrees with the pastor's uh, assessment. So the pastor convinces the man to come to church and hear the sermon next Sunday. Now the pressure's on the pastor. The pastor knows that um, he has to write the best sermon he ever wrote. And so he uh, sits down with pen and paper and he gets uh, really busy And the pastor writes the sermon as if this man is going to be the only man in the congregation that day. And he tells him about how God is good. He tells him about how God is love. He tells him that uh, we are all sinners and in need of God's grace. He tells him about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he tells him that they've all had to receive salvation through faith in this atonement. And at the end, he throws in as much fire and brimstone as he possibly could. And after the service was over, the man comes up to the pastor and says, you really told him. I'll be back next week to hear you tell him again. (laughs) This man is much like Israel in this particular passage. They're being told, you know, you're out of bounds. You're doing things wrong. But they, yep, you really told him, Lord. Continuing in our passage in uh, verse 11. His people remembered the ancient times where there is the one who brought them up out of the sea along with the shepherd of his flock. Where there is one who placed his Holy Spirit among them. The one who made his majestic power available to Moses who delivered the waters before them gaining for him a lasting reputation, who led them through the deep waters like a horse running on flat land they did not stumble, like an animal that goes down into a valley to graze. So the Spirit of the Lord granted them rest. In this way, you guided your people, gaining for yourself an honored reputation. Look down from heaven and take notice for your holy Majestic palace where you, where are, where your zeal and power did not hold back your tender compassion. For you are our father, through Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. You, Lord, are our father, you have been called our protector from ancient times. Why, Lord, did you make us stray from your ways and make our minds stumble? so that we did not obey you. Remember for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance. For a short time, your special nation possessed the land, but then our adversaries knocked down your holy sanctuary. We existed from ancient times, but you did not rule over them. They were not your subjects. And this is Israel remembering the good old days when the Lord was their God. And when things were good between them and the Lord. 
uh, I have called this section the good old days, and, rem- and it reminds me of a, a song that I first heard in the, in the early 60s. It's called Camp Granada. It was written and sung by Alan Sherman, who was the Weird Al of his day in the early 60s. So we're going to have a little clip and take a look at this. I know you're probably wondering how anyone in their right mind thinks that this scene relates to that passage in scripture. However, let me explain in my muddled little brain, it does make perfect sense. Um, our little camper thought that it would, uh, it could go wet, he could get back into the good graces of his parents. He could avoid the miserable experience of camp. However, once it stopped raining and camp became fun, he wanted to stay and enjoy himself. And like this, Israel also always wanted to God to come and rescue him when things weren't going well. However, they, when things were going well, they re- cho- chose to remain and enjoy their sin. And so, um, 
we see Israel struggling with this through this entire chapter. We start off with God coming and saying, I am judging the nations. And Israel says, yeah, they deserve it. And then he says, but all the things I've done for you, you've rebelled against me. And um, I have made you an enemy. And then Israel moans and, and remembers the good old days when we were in your good graces. Why can't we go back to that? So let's pick up with Isaiah uh, chapter 64, verse 1. If only you would tear apart the sky and come down, the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire ignites dry wood or fire makes water boil, let your adversaries know who you are. And may the nations shake at your presence. When you performed awesome deeds that took us by surprise, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard our um, uh, perceived, no eyes have seen any God besides you who intervenes for those who wait for him, who assists those who delight in doing what is right, who deserves your commandments. Look, you were angry because we violated them continuously. How then can we be saved? For we all, like one who is unclean, all our so-called righteous acts are like minstrel rags in your sight. You will wither like a leaf. Our sins carry us away like the wind. No one invokes your name or makes an effort to take hold of you, for you have rejected us and handed us over to our own sins. Is there such a thing as being too bad to be saved? I don't think so. However, there is also no such thing as saving oneself either. No matter how much God reveals himself, no matter how many good deeds we do, no, no matter how, how much we try to please him, if we fail to glorify him, if we seek to glorify only ourselves... All of our righteous deeds are just like filthy rags. Righteousness, according to the scriptures, is something that is worn like a garment. The scriptures tells us to put on the righteousness of Christ. Then when God looks upon us, we are uh, fit to stand before him. However, when we put on our own righteousness, it is as if we were standing uh, before the king wearing rags, and not just any rags, but filthy rags, a garment that has been used as a feminine hygiene product. This sounds revolting, doesn't it? And likewise, God finds it just as revolting. So let us continue to read and see if we can find a solution to this problem. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you our potter. We are all the products of your labor. Lord, do not be too angry. Do not hold our sins against us continually. Take a good look at your people, at all of us. Your chosen cities have become a desert. Zion has become a desert. Jerusalem is a desolate ruin. Our holy temples, 
Our pride and joy, the place where our ancestors praised you, have become burned with fire. All of our prized possessions have been destroyed. In light of all this, how can you still hold back, Lord? How can you still be silent and continue to humiliate us? When I visited uh, China in the summer of 2009, one of the tours that we went on was the tour of a pottery factory. And after the tour of the factory, we were directed to the gift shop, naturally. And while I was there, I wanted to buy Kathy something special. So so I thought I might find it in this place. And... um, I selected this piece of cloisonne. Is that the right way to say it, Kathy? I don't even know what I was buying. Well, one of the things that stood out about it is that all the colors in this vessel matched the living room furniture that we had. And I also noticed that it has a, uh, a phoenix on this side. Everybody see the phoenix? And it has a dragon on this side. And the lady who helped me told me that the phoenix represents the feminine and the dragon represents the masculine. And when they appear together, it represents domestic harmony. And I said, that's the right piece for my house. (laughs) So I knew that this was the right piece. And this piece has a place of honor in our house. It sits on the mantelpiece above our fireplace. We even bought a little wooden stand to put it on. And both Kathy and I strive to maintain a harmonious household. So it really represents what we think is important in our marriage. Now, we don't always achieve that. (laughs) You want to giggle a little louder, Kathy? (laughs) We don't always achieve that, but truly, both Kathy and I hate drama, and we strive to minimize it as much as we possibly could. Now, I want to know what you would think if we took this very nice piece that I spent a great deal of time figuring out was the right piece to buy for my wife, and we sat it by the bed and used it as a chamber pot instead. It would be kind of insulting, don't you think? And that's exactly what we do with the vessel that God made out of us. He made us to be vessels of honor. Vessels that have a special place in his house on the mantelpiece. Colors that match his scheme of decorating. Symbols that represent his love. Yet we oftentimes treat our vessels like chamber pots, don't we? The Israelites allowed their sins to carry them off in the wind like dried up leaves. While instead we have a place of honor in God's house. His love is powerful to save. His faithfulness is able to keep us. And his righteousness is able to present us perfect before the Father. Israel wanted us to, uh, Isaiah wanted us to know that judgment is coming. And that we all deserve judgment. And our righteous deeds are insufficient to save us. 
And we have to trust in the salvation of God so that we might glorify him. And isn't that the essence of the Christmas story? Isn't that why we're reading Isaiah during Advent, is to remember the Christmas story? That babe in the manger grows up one day and pays the cost of our sins on the cross. However, it doesn't end there. He has risen. I often am frustrated with uh, the Roman Catholic uh, crucifix, where Jesus is nailed to the cross to this day. I even get frustrated with the, press, uh, with the Protestants' empty cross, because really what symbolizes the hope and, and, uh, and trustworthiness of God is the empty tomb. That resurrection of the dead. One of my employees uh, from years ago uh, asked, was asking me a bunch of questions about uh, uh, the gospel. And every day he had really good, intelligent questions. And one day he asked me, Ron, what is the real significant difference between Christianity and every other religion out there? Buddhism, Mohammedism, all that. And I told him it's the resurrection of the dead. That is really the difference between what we practice and what the rest of the world is practicing. And he says, that's ridiculous. It's just nonsense. And he stopped asking questions. And you know, we were told that to the Jew, it was going to be a stumbling block. And to the Gentile, it was going to be nonsense. Foolishness. So, we live in an age where we have the opportunity to share that gospel, to take that Christmas story out to the world. And I encourage you to remember that not only do we have a salvation that saves us from our sins, but we have a salvation that continues to sanctify us day by day. We do not have to be under the authority of sin. We are free from sin. And so every day, you can ask the Lord... And we're going to close with this song. We're going to ask the Lord for three things each day. And we get this from the movie Godspell. And it, the first is to see him more clearly, follow him more nearly, and love him more dearly, day by day. So let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to present the words from Isaiah. I ask, Lord, that you would bless, that you would fill us each with your Holy Spirit and help us to take this away and day by day draw closer to you through the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.